Today on First Lady and Friends, we had a really important conversation with Emily Bell McCormick, Mary Catherine Perry, and Kristen Andress with The Policy Project. They are working on some great legislation this year around preventing child sex abuse. They talked about the other projects that they've worked on in the past. It was a powerful conversation about how we can get involved, how policy matters, how women can move some of these policies forward throughout the state. Can't wait for you to take a listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. I'm really excited about this episode. We've been trying to put this together for a long time. Um, my friends from the Policy Project are here. Emily Bell McCormick, Mary Catherine Perry, and Kristen Andrus. Kristen, it sounds like you need a third name. So, <laughs> so happy that you all are here. Um, you have been a power team that has just uh, been so influential in the state in the for the last several years and I'm just so excited to have you all here. Thank you for having us. This is so fun. Um so let's just maybe Emily, let's start with you. We've had Kristen's been on the the program before. Return guest, we're so happy to have her. Uh we have not had Emily or Mary Catherine here. So why don't Emily, why don't you tell a little bit about your background, how you got here? Uh, what you've been up to for the last many, many years. (laughs) The last 45 years? Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, So I, I, you know, started out, I'm a Utah native, born and raised here, Um, went to BYU for undergrad, went to the Ohio State University for graduate school. Um, And really, I worked in strategic communication and I have this passion for fashion. And so I started a couple um, apparel companies. But as I got older and started... uh, I had children, I have five kids. I started seeing some of the inequities in the world and I I felt grateful to have been um, in a religion that taught me a lot about serving other people and trying to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And I think as I exposed myself to living different places, you know, we, we my husband and I had kind of moved around during those early family years um, and I could see different life situations. I, I What I realized was that I needed to do something more than what I was doing to change uh, the things that I saw. And so um, the way that I kind of tripped into forming the policy project was really out of a desire to do the most good for the greatest number of people. I was so used to doing one-on-one service, which I think is absolutely essential for every good and healthy community. But my mind kept tripping over, how do you scale this? You know, we can all adopt five families and or, you know, take coats to endless drives or, you know, donate blood, all these different ways of doing good that are so, so important. But my mind got really tripped up on this idea of like, how do we scale this to the masses? How do we do so much good at once? And um, long story that I'll save for another day with you. Uh, But I basically had this big realization that policy was a great way to scale, that it was a way that we didn't often think about as a charitable way to do good and improve life and improve community. But 
what I found was, hey, if we can pull some levers at the policy level, then it impacts the entire state uh, of Utah. And so that is kind of how I got into the policy project and, and building that out as a nonprofit here in Utah. And it did not grow, worked on a few things, but did not truly grow to its full potential until meeting, you know, working with these women and building out a big team of incredible people who really brought all of their talents that filled in my lack of talent, you know, and really made it something amazing. Yeah. Mary Catherine, talk about, you know, a little bit about your background and again, how you got involved as well. Sure. Um, I also graduated from BYU. I had done an internship in Washington, D.C., which really opened my eyes to policy and kind of where decisions about our lives were being made, you know, by elected leaders. And um, I came back, I did a master in public administration, and then my first job out of that was with the Utah legislature. So I learned over and over and over how a bill becomes a law, how policies were passed, how they were advocated, what strategies worked, what ones didn't, and truly how one voice could make a difference at our state level. I mean, truly over and over, one voice, five voices, you know, organizations. And and I could see myself in that setting. I was very comfortable in the Capitol and kind of could see the process and how all of us could plug into that and make a difference for our communities. So I worked there for a while. I paused. I raised four children, but kept really involved in public education, PTA, school community councils, classrooms, you know, all of those things and learned more and more about that system. And then during COVID really um, got back involved with the legislative, um, the legislature and working on policy to help some public education policies move forward. And then with that kind of reconnected with Emily. And so just truly trying to remove barriers for kids and students in Utah became a passion for me too. And then we joined on with um, and started the period project and then it's been going ever since. Yeah. Now, Kristen, we know a little bit about your background, um, but this is, this is a different space for you than you've been in. You've been deep in the nonprofit, deep in um, philanthropy and outreach, but this policy project is a different space for you. So talk a little bit about that transition. Well, I will say I was leaving the Capitol last night and thought to myself, this is not for me. <laughs> you know, it, it definitely pushes me and pulls me in different ways than I'm used to. Um, I kind of came in a little bit... I wouldn't say kicking and screaming, but it was kind of like, I don't think policy is my thing. I do like the philanthropic side. I do like encouraging women to show up and give back and the coat drives and the, we talk a lot, you and I talk a lot about sitting in people's stories and and getting proximate. And so that really, really pushes me. But through the period project and really being asked by Emily, hey, come and help me with with some policy up on Capitol Hill, I thought, okay, I'll go up once. But then I saw what was possible. Um, and it was really larger than anything I could ever do. Also, it was bigger than any dollar I could give. I could give so much um, to the food bank or different things that I still do. But in policy, I was able to participate in a way that truly affected all of our kids. What I will say is as much as policy is important to me, the the day-to-day, the personal interaction, the service projects, all of that is still very important to me and my work in terms of, you know, I talk about getting my hands dirty and my heart broken. And that's something that is still 
of utmost importance to me and then also bringing others along with us. What I loved about policy and I laugh, everyone says, what's your title? And I joke, but I'm not joking that like I don't let anyone give me a title because I want to be able to help with as many groups and organizations and, you know, different things around our state as possible. And so when Whatever I'm doing, it's never alone. Um, It's always bringing other women and families and students along with us. And that we were able to do that through policy. I thought it might be kind of a lonely and, and our group is fairly small, but we have encouraged, you know, thousands of women to join us. And I think they're ready and willing. And so that has been one of the most exciting parts of policy that I wasn't foreseeing the first time I walked up to the Capitol. But I'll tell you, it is not easy and it is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> that is true. Having been uh, politically adjacent for many, many years, uh, this I, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. Um, so you you alluded to the period project. That was the first um, sort of project in the policy project. So let's let's start with the end though, and let's we'll go we'll go back to that. But I do want to talk about what you're working on this year because it's so important. We have the legislative session that just started yesterday. Um, first, first day of the session yesterday. We're we're in it here for forty five days. Um, it's it's a tough. Those that don't know anything about the legislative session, um, <laughs> find yourself uh, grateful, but also find yourself like curious and make sure that you do make your voice heard. I hear a lot of times, what what happened? What was this crazy bill that passed? And I'm like, well, it's too late. You didn't exactly. you didn't use your voice before mm-hmm. that and you didn't mm-hmm. reach out to legislators and you didn't get involved in the process. So if you want a voice, um, it's really easy to have a voice if if you get involved. It really is. Um, people don't believe me, but it's true. Um, so let's talk about what you're doing this year with the legislative session. What are your goals? Um, what's the project that you're working on? So uh, we are working on something called the Safe Child Project, and I'm going to just set this up for you. And then Mary Catherine is really the expert in government affairs, so she'll talk about kind of the actual process here. But uh, we we really try to go upstream of issues. That's kind of our method and our approach. We're a lot less interested in, you know, what are we doing now that we have a population that is experiencing homelessness? You know, we're more interested in looking at that population and saying, hey, what happened 20, 30, 40 years ago in their life that we could maybe intervene with and, and, and read and, and that may actually have the ability to like redirect a life. And so just knowing that one of the things that we had been looking at was, man, we've got some big issues in society with homelessness, with substance abuse, suicide, uh, extreme mental illness, the inability to graduate or have long term relationships, you know, some of these really big, hefty issues that frankly, we, we're trying to figure out, but no one has quite figured it out yet. And we started looking at root causes for those issues. And one that came up for every single one of those and more, including incarceration and some other things was child sexual abuse. So, so a lot of people who end up in those positions have experienced child sexual abuse. We start, we dove in, we started looking at what was happening in Utah. In the state of Utah, it's about one in seven kids who are being sexually abused. Um, you think of that number, 
I just wrote an op-ed for the Deseret News. Um, we talk a lot about stop, drop, and roll. You know, in school, we learn stop, drop, and roll. And um, that's for fire prevention, preventing burning to death or something as a child. That's like one in 674 kids that happens to. One in seven kids are sexually abused. And so we started looking at like, man, that's a big problem. And it's a yucky one. Nobody wants to talk about it. But actually, everyone has either experienced it or know someone who has. It's just so common. So we started looking at, was there a solution that we could put in place um, early on? Again, not dealing with necessarily when somebody, you know, realizes it and comes to the table, but really early in a life because the majority of that abuse is happening between the ages of seven and 13. That is so young. That's elementary school. So we started looking at a possible policy initiative and what we could do to impact on that end. So when we looked at public schools and, and you know, honestly, the legislature decided 10 years ago in statute that elementary schools was an appropriate place to talk about this. And as Emily said, there are so many things that we talk about to children in schools, like um, bullying prevention and substance abuse prevention. And, you know, we're tackling social media, too, and kind of how can we do that, take care of that in schools and phones. And, and those are all so important. But in the meantime, we've got this kind of another silent need that we're not talking about. It's this thing that's happening in the corners, in the dark, in the secret, you know, in secrecy. And we're not doing a great job at prevention on that and helping students understand and children understand that they can talk to somebody about this, that they can get help and that you know, when it's 90% of the time it's someone they know and trust in their circle, they not may not be told the truth about what's normal. And so schools are an excellent place to kind of help them understand the basics of talking to a trusted adult, you know, what's appropriate or what's not, but in a very age appropriate way. And so when we looked at the numbers, honestly, only about 11% of Utah's elementary school students are getting child sexual abuse prevention education at school. We hope families are talking about this, but just in case they're not, schools are a great place to start those conversations. And, and honestly, teachers are such a trusted adult for children. Often they feel very safe to disclosing or talking to their teacher about something that's not quite right in their lives. So we're going to be working with the legislature to create more opportunities for students across the state, everywhere, not just urban schools, not just rural schools, but everywhere to get funding and legislative support to help get those conversations in the school by professionals or maybe by somebody in their school, a nurse, a social worker who's been trained in age-appropriate curriculum to help have those conversations with those students. Yeah, Kristen, you, um, we're, we're all parents in here, and you and I have had this conversation before about, um, and, and you know, I full, full-throatedly endorsed this project because I, I have so many people coming to me um, saying, you know, we we need help. We need to, you know, we need to do stuff to, to help people that have been sexually abused or trafficked or all these other things. And it always comes back to me, like, what are we doing to prevent? I mean, I don't, I look at my kids, um, my 17 year old daughter, and I say, you know, I, I think as a parent, that was my, that is still my biggest fear for my children, that something like this will happen to them. And if one in seven, that's a fear that's been realized by many, many, many parents. Um, so, so my question is always prevention. How do we as parents and educators and people in school, how are we 
preventing this. And so maybe talk a little bit about this idea of prevention and how this policy project this year is going to address that. Yeah. Prevention is so important, but I think to start with, we as parents need to see ourselves in this conversation. We need to say this conversation applies to me and my children. So often it's so easy to other you know, this doesn't happen in my community in Holiday, Utah, where I live. This doesn't happen in the school that Mike, oh, that's so sad that happens in Utah, not with me, not with my kids. Um, and so they really, you know, I, I when I go on social media, it's easy for people to scroll past and say, not my problem, not something that I need to worry about. It will never happen to my kids. I promise you it will or it will come close, especially when we're talking about non-touch, um, when we're talking about kids really just normalizing what's happening on social media, on the things that they're sending to each other. So when parents, first of all, say, whether it be sleepovers, whether it be, you know, risky, assessing risky situations with your kids to say this, actually, this conversation does apply to me. I belong in this conversation. And by the way, so do our kids. You know, oftentimes as we're doing these big events, big community events, and, you know, we have Elizabeth Smart coming to speak. And so often we get the, you know, I really believe in this, but I don't know that I need to go because like I've got it taken care of or. And so, no, we actually have to be talking about it. I cannot tell you the thousands of moms that have come forward on social media and said to me, this happened to me. I never talked to my kids about it and I'm going to now. Or I actually thought I was doing a good job. And just yesterday, two of my kids walked into my bedroom and told me the unimaginable. This is literally five doors down and five seats away from us. And so prevention at the very heart of it is saying, I belong in this conversation and I must talk to my kids about this. We believe this must be in schools because, by the way, this conversation is hard for me to have. And this is my work. Right. And I'm sitting in these stories and it's honestly tearing me apart on a daily basis because I am having people disclose to me constantly. Um, But we need to start talking about it. We need parents to say this happened to me. And when kids say, wow, my mom for the first time told me that this happened to her when she was five, eight, 12. It's happening all the time. Kids will say this could happen to me. We also say prevention is stopping it after the first time. We had a proximate gathering and I called it that because you talk, you talk about getting proximate and we sat with survivors and there was this aha moment for a survivor who stopped it after the first time. And another woman said, Prevention is stopping it for child sexual abuse. Prevention is stopping it after the first time because there are going to be perpetrators. There are going to be kids in our homes, in our neighborhoods, coming after our kids. Prevention is saying, I'm not comfortable. I'm going to talk to my mom and stopping it after the first time. And this survivor who had stopped it was in tears streaming down her face. And she said, I did stop it. I have always felt so guilty. I always felt like I didn't do enough, but I'm realizing for the first time at 42 years old, Mm -hmm. I did prevent it. And so these conversations that we're having, they're hard, they're difficult. They make you sick to your stomach. We must push through it and continue to talk about it in our homes and in our schools. Yeah, I want to, I want to, go to this, there's some pushback, obviously. We Anything we do, again, when we get involved in these things, there is going to be some pushback. And you wouldn't think, 
you know, child sex abuse prevention should be a pretty standard. You know, everybody, I think most people believe that that is, you know, something we should be involved in. It's always the way we come at it. Um, People have different opinions about how we come at it, you know, home, school, you know, some some people have have different opinions about where that comes from. Um, I want to address this, Mary Catherine, because I know you've gotten this pushback. And, and let's do that when we come right back. We are back here with my friends from the Policy Project, Emily Bell McCormick, Mary Catherine Perry, and Kristen Andrus. Um, I have to say, Mary Catherine, I, I've had a, a week where politically it's just hard. So I understand that, you know, politics is part of the equation. It really is. It has to be. And so we but and again, we come at this from different angles in the, in the spirit of disagree better. We understand that people, good people may have a disagreement with the way we do things, how we approach things. And and so we're, we're okay with that. Mm-hmm. We can disagree better. Mm-hmm. And you guys have been really great with this. You've addressed issues. You've tackled really tough um, conversations. But talk about maybe a little bit of the pushback and why. I, I assume it, it comes from, you know, there's a, there's a, there's really a, a two schools of thought, and one is that, yes, we should address things like this in school because that's where kids are. That's the mm-hmm. nexus. You talked about teachers. Teachers are required reporters, so they do get this. They have to be aware of seeing things. Um, a lot of times they have conversations as an educator. Like, you're you're having conversations that sometimes you don't want to or you're scared to because you're afraid that maybe I'm not allowed to have this kind of conversation, mm-hmm. but this kid needs me right now. And and so those conversations are happening kind of regardless because they're kids and you're a trusted adult in that classroom. So maybe talk a little bit about the pushback and how we how you've tried to overcome it. Sure. And I love how you set this up because one thing that I think is wonderful about the way we work on projects is that we truly listen and engage in those hard conversations where people talk to us like we gather like-minded people but we're also out in the communities listening asking questions constantly learning from people and we're not afraid to hear the pushback or the hard questions and like have you thought about this or have you thought about that because as we always say that makes policy better when we engage in those discussions when we listen Um, But uh, like this, we all agree that children should be safe, but we may not agree on how we get there. And so one of the things we truly have been working on this policy for months and months, like we are um, talking, listening to individuals, to groups. We just got back from Southern Utah, where we listened to sheriffs and county attorneys and school board members and all of these people to, to understand what is their experience in St. George or Iron County, and we'll be in Cache County, we'll be, you know, we're in Salt Lake tonight, we're just trying to listen. Um, I think some of the pushback comes a little bit, as we know, public education is kind of got a spotlight on it right now, and what's talked about in classrooms, and can everyone agree on what should be talked about or should not be talked about? I think one of the things there's a couple things we need to understand that this is a problem and that maybe how we've approached it for many, many years isn't working, that by not talking about it, that that doesn't prevent the problem. We need to engage in, in these age appropriate conversations. That is prevention. That is helping. But by avoiding it altogether, that's not 
helping the problem. Um, in fact, it it enables it. And so understanding kind of and coming together to 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 put together a policy that truly is going to help superintendents and principals um, feel confident and engaging in this conversation with their students and 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 making that opportunity available for students and families as much as possible we want this to support family conversations you know like we've said you know it's uncomfortable for us and sometimes I don't even know how to start this but when we have you know researched, curriculum and in very short presentations for students where families are invited to attend, it really does become a family conversation that that parents feel more confident about talking about it. Um, Teachers feel more confident in receiving those disclosures that come forward. Um, But I think that we need to kind of, you know, policy is kind of imagining a life that's not your own. And so if you're really focused on this is my experience, this is what I want for my children only, you kind of get trapped in that narrower thinking about how to address problems that you may not know exist. But when you look at all of our Utahns experience, it is so wide and varied and wonderful, but heartbreaking. And so we need to kind of open up our vision to how can we help everyone in Utah? Yeah, it's that's very well said. And, you know, I think you're you're spot on. I love the listening. I love the looking that somebody else might have a different experience than I do. It's it's one of my favorite things. It's you know, it's that Adam Grant be a be a mm-hmm. you know, be a scientist as you as you think and be be willing to hear that you might be wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I love that. That's just kind of um just it's how we it's how we create empathy. It's how we learn and go forward. Um, it, it's really great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you You have more projects that you've done. Um, this one is big and, and it's current. And if and before we leave the conversation, I want to just maybe, Emily, if there's a, a way that if people are supportive and can get involved Currently, again, this is this is happening currently. We're trying to you you all are trying to get something done in in this legislative session. So maybe if there's people that are like minded or that are really passionate about this, tell them how they can get involved with you. Yes, uh, we welcome all to the table, and we need so many hands for this one. That's for sure. Um, like. Uh, First Lady Cox mentioned we have 44 days left to get this done. So come join us. We have events that we're doing in um, all communities throughout the state of Utah every Wednesday during the legislative session. So what that means to, you know, most people is basically through February. So if you go to the website, which is just thepolicyproject.org, there's a place that says uh, uh, get involved and it talks about the events. You can also become a community champion. So if you're interested in this idea of like wide scale positive change um, and want to be more involved that's just a way that people can volunteer with us but we'd love for them to come we actually have an event tonight in Salt Lake City one next week in Davis County so uh, one in Cache County after that so we'll kind of be everywhere perfect I I love that and again it's such a powerful way to to have your voice heard to you know dabble in the legislative process if you're not ready to jump full forward in it but it's it's you know it's a representative government and and honestly if there is I, I will give this plug always for everyone across the state know who your legislator is find out who they are if you don't know 
find out you you each have a representative, you each have a state senator, uh, get to know them, uh, message them, talk to them about your issues. If it's this, certainly reach out and talk to them about it. If if it's something else, honestly, get involved. That at the very least, as a citizen, it's it's our duty to know who they are and be able to reach out to them. It's easy. I promise they are there. They want to hear from their constituents. They really do. Um, they they most often hear from a small, loud group in their constituency that does that may not represent the entire district. And so your voice is really important. They need a good cross section of voices in their in their district so that they have a sense. Uh, we just did an event with teachers and legislators and got them together and and let the teachers classroom teachers have an opportunity to weigh in and talk to legislators about the process, about the bills, about things that were coming up, about the hard things in schools. And so it's been a really great thing. Um, you all have been involved in a couple of more policy projects. And you you mentioned the period project. Let's start with that one. Um, we, we do need to take one more break. So let's go on those two when we come right back. We're back here on First Lady and Friends with the Policy Project team, um, Emily Bell McCormick, Mary Catherine Perry, and Kristen Andrus. We have had a great conversation about current projects. And um, just, again, I can give another plug, get involved uh, with the team. They're doing great work. Let's talk about past projects. Um, Let's start with the period project. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Kristen, because I think you and I connected on this at the very beginning, and it's how I got involved with the policy project. Uh, again, it's one of those really heavy lifts, but and also one of those things that a lot of us don't think about, and maybe a weird conversation for some of us to have. I mean, I grew up in a house with a mom who didn't talk about any of this, you know, female body. We just didn't have that conversation came. She was old school. Like we just didn't have, and she had eight daughters. So it was a little weird, (laughs) (laughs) but she's great. And, and now that's all we talk about as as girls. (laughs) So, you know, the sisters and my mom, we've, we've, we've baptized her in, in, you know, sisterhood. So talk a little bit about how this came about. Yeah, so um, Emily had been working on the tampon tax, and we were actually neighbors. Um, we were both young-ish mothers, mid-age mothers, but with young kids, and kind of like both had the same temperament of like, how can we get out of the house? And so I was watching what she was doing with the tampon tax, and I was boots on the ground working with the food bank, um, starting something called Sister Goods, um, where we were distributing the first year, which you were so helpful with, three million period products across the state of Utah. Um, And what I love about you, Abby, is I held a lunch Um, for the sister goods talking about period poverty. And it was probably the first time you had ever heard about it. Probably the first time you ever spoke in public, especially as the first lady about periods. And you said, yes, I'm there. I'm in. And so to say that you were instrumental from a very early stage before the period project was even a thing 
is true. And so I feel so grateful that you've been willing to be a hero for women and to show up even kind of in in unexpected times and conversations. And you have continued to show up through the years for that. Um, So Emily convinced me that like, yes, this is great. You're in 226 pantries, but you have to keep fundraising for this. What if we do something that's more sustainable? So I laugh because that is the first time that I walked up to the Capitol with her and Speaker Brad Wilson at the time was like, yep, let's do it. Let's put, and I walked out and I'm like, wow, this is pretty easy, this policy thing. (laughs) Um, And so what was really neat about the period project was it really was a group of women kind of getting back into things around a kitchen table saying, this isn't fair. We want to do it different. We want to rethink um, how we look at bathrooms in Utah. And we want to change the narrative. We want to disrupt how things are done, not only with policy, but involving women, involving students. And so we threw a period party, having no idea if anybody was going to show up. And we had over 300 women and kids show up with representing over 60 schools across Utah. And we really started a movement. And I think that's what was exciting about the period project is one, it's something that people didn't think about. They thought period poverty was in India and Africa, and it is, but it's also in our state. And so there was an awareness and there also, I will say, wasn't baggage. You know, there wasn't layers and baggage of years and years of policy efforts that that were hard. It was new and fresh and really exciting because women wanted to be involved. They believed in this. They leaned in and they showed up. They met, you know, we had students bring period posters to their principal, set up appointments to meet with school administration. That's hard. And they did it. Um, But they really believed that once again, they had a part and they had something to say. And it, it was an incredible movement to be a part of. Yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, you're too kind. I don't know that I did that much. I, it was, but it was this moment where I thought, you know, there is this opportunity for women. I think a lot of us um, don't know where we can be effective. I think most of us want to do something to improve our communities. And, and so it's, it really is this moment where, you know, all women understand this. Yep. A particular topic. <laughs> and, you know, Mary Catherine, talk a little bit about what you saw the need and, you know, why, why this project, why, what the need was here in Utah. Well, the thing that for me and my experience, I have, my husband and I have stayed so politically neutral because of his work, because of my work. And, and so it was very easy to just say, you know, I don't do anything political, at least not publicly. I vote, but I don't put yard signs in. I don't do, you know, choose candidates. I don't engage in those things. And then it was really an eye opener for me when Emily was doing working on the tampon tax. And I realized, oh, policy doesn't have to be political. Mm-hmm. Like we can truly prioritize policy over politics. And so I went to the tampon tax rally. Then COVID hit and we kind of were working on more policies together. Um, but it was I, I've seen in schools in my own kids school districts that there are so many barriers for certain students um, to overcome just to access the classroom, to access 
an aware mind that can learn. You know, when we talk to teachers and counselors and things, they're like, we are having trouble just meeting basic needs of students in our state. And we can't teach hungry students. We can't teach girls who are like crossing their legs and hoping they don't start their period in class. I mean, truly, this was a need that we saw among many others. And we've tackled those with other projects, too. But truly, when we listen to teachers and superintendents and things, there are barriers that they can't tackle alone. And so as the policy project, we've tried to partner with them to help address some of those needs so that they can do their best work. They can do the work that they've been trained to do and that they love. That's why they're in education. That's why they're there is because they love engaging with students on, you know, academics and and safety and all the wonderful things that they do. But we want to help take care of removing some of those barriers first. Yeah. Mary Catherine, I love that you addressed the the pressures on teachers. I will have to say, you know, of course, this is um, a, a passion of mine to really think about our educators and what is happening, you know, in our schools and the idea that, you know, teachers are trained to, to teach academics, to do the things, you know, they, they're passionate about, about helping children. And then, um, and then we realize when we're in a classroom that some of those things can't happen. I can't teach history to a student who can't even get to school because I, you know, my mom's working and she had to be up and leave and I don't know how to get there, Mm -hmm. you know, or yeah, I didn't have breakfast or I haven't eaten or I have to go home on a weekend and what do I, what do I eat on the weekend? So there's so much. And not, not only that, we see, I've said, and it breaks my heart that the polarization that we're seeing in our country and in our state is that it's dropping right in the laps of our educators Mm -hmm. and, and it's really tough and it puts them in a really tough position. So, so I love that we're addressing and helping to lift the burden of our educators as well as our students. And, um, you know, as mothers, as parents, we, we can do this because we see this and we can, we can be, that village for a mother that maybe needs a little help to to help their student. One of the things, one of the other projects that we worked on last year, which again, I'm really passionate about because it really connects with the foster care work that we've been doing at Show Up. But Emily, talk a little bit about the project last year, how it how it integrates with what, what you've been doing with the policy project in these other areas um, with your teen centers. Yeah, so we did, we worked on a project called the Teen Center Project. Um, and this was really, it, it was a cool project because we really entered the foray of the policy world with periods. And that was such a specific need, like Kristen and Mary Catherine said, it was specific, it was like, not political because no one had talked about it before. And so that was kind of uh, gave us a look into this world. Once we were in there and in schools, what we could see is just like you said, there were so many barriers to the classroom. I think the three of us and the rest of the team were shocked, uh, you know, at how many barriers teachers, administrators, people are trying to work with and work around to help kids absorb information. And and so as we looked at that, what we saw was, man, we, there was a, a, a strangely high number of kids experiencing homelessness in the state of Utah. It's one in 50. Um, uh, that That's way higher than most people would think. Um, that includes 
couch surfing, which is a term some people are not familiar with, but basically where they just don't have a set house. They're sleeping at their aunts and then at their grandmas and then, you know, different places. Um, but there was a big homeless population. There's also a large population of kids in the state who just don't have parents that are able to fully care for them. Um, and whether that's because of, uh, you know, substance abuse issues, they're working three jobs, they are a single parent. You know, there's so many things that can complicate raising children. As we all know, it's hard enough when you even have a significant other. Um, so we started seeing those as big barriers to the classroom and looking, trying again to kind of look at what things we could do to intervene with that. Uh, what we discovered was there had been some models at East High in Salt Lake City, um, some in Davis County, uh, so, some uh, modeling of this idea of having a resource center in the high school where there would be showers. Kids could take a private shower, not the weird shower heads in the gym, you know, um, washer and dryer where they could do laundry because if you're living in a car, you don't have a way to wash your clothes, um, grab and go food, and most of all, a trusted adult. So a lot of time by school counselors is being used, you know, with scheduling and schedule changes, those kinds of things. But what we realized is, man, we work so hard as a state, as a, you know, the governor, the legislature, um, community leaders work so hard to put in place so many resources that people can access. And what happens is there's a big breakdown. Like kids don't know that those resources exist. They don't know that there's a place they could sleep tonight, a place that they could get food, a place that they could do those things. And so what if we brought together all of these ideas and put them into a, a space and place that would basically help these kids connect to outside resources? So we build out this idea of of um, a teen center that could be scaled to the entire state of Utah. Um, and so we ended up raising uh, $18 million for this. And we've just uh, found out literally this week from the Utah State Board of Education that all of that 18, you know, all of that money has been used. And we've been able to get into more than 70 schools. There are about 200 high schools in the state of Utah. So we've got a good chunk of the schools that are being taken care of with these teen centers. It's really incredible we were I was just up to the ribbon cutting for one in Davis County um, at Viewmont High School and um, I, I have to say like it it brought tears to my eyes because I think again if we get proximate if we if we start to look outside of ourselves our own our own little bubble and and look at what what's going on with other people and people that are suffering it's it's hard work it it's it's got wrenching. Um, it's so much easier to turn your eye and just focus inward and just look at your own family and think, I, I got my own problems. I got my things I'm doing. But when you hear this, you can't unhear a story of a kid that, which I heard that he tried out for the wrestling team and just was a part of the wrestling team, not because he wanted to wrestle, because he literally wanted a shower. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be able to go into that locker room as part of the team and and get a shower. That was it. Yeah. And and to me like you know I think of my own kids that would that is absolutely heartbreaking. So um I I do just want to say as we come to a close maybe just each of you talk about what do you wish people knew either about any of these projects or just in general how to get involved. Let's just let's start with you Emily. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I think the th the thing I wish everyone knew is something that I wish I would have known at a younger age. It took me a minute to kind of figure it out that we really do belong to each other. And, and, uh, you know, I think we know that we feel that we sense that, 
but sometimes like the comfort and access and and opportunities we've been given, especially if you've been given a lot of those things, you, you do get caught up in your own day to day. But the second you open yourself up to seeing the world outside of yourself, you can see there is so much need for you as an individual. This world is just waiting for each of us to engage and to help someone else and, and to help just a broader community. And I also like echo that idea of belonging. Like some of us belong quite naturally to groups and, and a family and all of those things. That, but there's people who don't have that belonging, just like joining the wrestling team. They needed a belonging. They needed a place and a place to shower and feel part of the school. We can help create that space for belonging. And I just feel so passionately about engaging in policy advocacy. We need voices there because we need every person, just like you have the right to vote, you have a right to advocate. And we need everyone to feel and find that space where they can use their voice because we need those voices desperately. I would say everyone can have their issue that they feel strongly about. I remember being at the governor's mansion and talking to a woman who is fighting for children that don't have earring hate hearing aids paid by insurance and she is going to spend the rest of her life ensuring that that is taken care of. And I'm so glad she's doing that because I never will. So find your thing. I don't care if it's teen centers, periods or safe child project, but what is your thing that you care about and do something about it? One step in front of another, create action. You have your own circle of influence, but we have to do something. We can't just sit and do nothing. Thank you. And and thank you to all of you. It, those are perfect words to end on. And I just I will just add that um, politics seems scary. And if it's it's scary, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get people that that don't like what you're doing. They are the negative voices. Um, you three in in this room right now are pushing past the negative voices. You're you are doing projects and work with heart and soul and you're as mothers we're connecting with kids that need us and that need a mother need a person um need a caring adult in their life um so don't be afraid get involved politics can be scary it doesn't have to be political but our our positive voices matter right now in this country um we are seeing so much negative so much tearing down and i think it's 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 a powerful way for us as women to rise up and say we're not okay with that we're not okay with the tearing down of other people of other communities of othering people um that we can put forth a, a positive voice a positive message as women i mean i th just think we're we're adept for that i think it's it's our most of us we feel it as a calling um, so I appreciate all of you. I know it's hard. I know you've been brave. I know you've been courageous in this work. So I, I honor you for that and appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. To get involved and learn more about other projects, go to thepolicyproject.org. Thanks for being a friend.